0: Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. I, uh, ooh, God, I think I said one time that I would never wear a sweater on the stage again for this very reason, and here I am making the same mistake. See if that works a little bit better. We'll try to figure this out. If not, I'll just yell. I have a loud enough voice to do that with. Uh, so, uh... We're starting a series on Proverbs this week. I, you know, I was supposed to speak, uh, a few weeks ago, um, as we were getting into Advent, um, uh, working on a sermon out of Isaiah. And as so many of you have also experienced, you know, uh, COVID kind of entered our family and we had to quarantine. And I was excited about giving that sermon. And I, you know, we come back a few weeks later and he tells me, I'm going to let you speak again. And then he tells me we're going to start a series on Proverbs. And I was like, man, from Isaiah to Proverbs, well, that's not a, uh, a drastic change at all. What am I going to do with what I've kind of coined as uh, a divinely inspired fortune cookie? Now, I don't mean that as a as a slight to Proverbs. Uh, it's just sometimes it's tough to read and sometimes it's kind of hard to follow in the way that we like to do sometimes. Uh, but what I thought I would do this morning as I began to do my study, I was kind of like uh, thinking about it and I was... Uh, What I'm going to try to do this morning is kind of give us a framework of the book of Proverbs, which we can kind of study it maybe more fully in the coming weeks, kind of take a bird's eye view approach to the book of Proverbs and kind of see the direction and the division of the book and how it kind of flows uh, together to kind of help us understand as we move forward in the coming weeks and months uh, about the book of Proverbs, you know, we live in a what they call an information age. It's just an age of information. Knowledge is kind of ubiquitous, and we're kind of uh, cranking out prolific amounts of knowledge daily. I read an article uh, a while back on this very subject, and it said that prior to 2003, mankind had a sum total of five exabytes of content. Now, if you're a computer illiterate like I am, That means nothing to you. Let me try to help just a little bit. And It says an exabyte is a billion gigabytes. Now, if you're computer literate like I am, you're still saying, what in the world is he talking about? And I encourage you to find someone else smarter than me after this service and ask them. But an exabyte is a billion gigabytes. So five exabytes of content from the beginning of humanity to 2003. Today, it's estimated that we generate this amount in content measured in days. And at the time, Google CEO, his name was Eric Schmidt, said this. He said, between the birth of the world in 2003, five exabytes of information have been kind of collected. We now create five exabytes every two days. We're in informational overload. So many of us, it doesn't, you can be anywhere and get anything you want. Anywhere, anytime, just with the swipe of your finger. It's an instant gratification type world where all the information is at our fingertips. But information is not the same as wisdom. Information is not the same as wisdom. You can have a lot of knowledge, but not have the equivalent amount of wisdom to know what to do with all that knowledge. This is part of the problem I think we have in the church today. Learning is not the same thing as living. Learning isn't the same thing as living. You might have a lot of money, but if you don't have wisdom, you will lose it. You might have fame. You may have a platform. But if, if you don't have wisdom, it will be your ruin. You might have a long life, but without wisdom, what actually is it worth? What is it worth if you don't have wisdom? In fact, when it comes to knowledge and wisdom, without God, you have nothing. When it comes to knowledge and wisdom, if you don't have God in the center of your life, you have nothing. The Bible talks about those who always are learning and never coming to the knowledge of truth. So having knowledge is important, but it's not if you don't intimately unite that with wisdom. It's all more important. And this book has this type of wisdom as the grand theme. And I hope by now that as you've read through your Bible and studied it, intentionally and intensely, you understand that it's very practical. It has the depth of doctrinal teaching. The heights of prophecy that can exhilarate even the most bored of us all. Great depth, great height. But more than that, it's intensely practical for our daily life. Proverbs may be the most practical book of all. Yet, I think it's kind of odd that it seems to be the most, uh, the least applied. It may be the most practical, practical, but it seems to be the least applied of all the books. Proverbs, it follows Psalms in the Old Testament. And Psalms, if it teaches us how to be alone with God, to relate to Him, Proverbs teaches us how to relate to each other. If Psalms does that, then Proverbs teaches us how we can relate to each other. If Psalm teaches us how to get alone with God on our knees, then Proverbs teaches us how to stand on our feet and walk through life. How to navigate the pathways of life that we so often find ourselves on. Some of them are rough. Some of them are smooth. If Psalm teaches us how to praise God in private, Proverbs teaches us how to take our relationship with God into the public square. How to take that praise and that admiration and that love for God and live it out in the world where the world can see. But to do that, we need wisdom. It's 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs, and I find that interesting because the longest month we have is 31 days. I love its division. That's why some of us, we make it a point to read a Proverbs every day. A chapter of Proverbs every day for every day of the month. If you don't do that, I encourage you to start doing that. Start with the date of today and read a chapter in the Proverbs. Proverbs is the third book of the poetic books. There's five books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. But it seems to be one of the first books penned solely by Solomon. Or most, if not solely. Solomon, he was a prolific writer in the Proverbs as well as songs. He wrote almost 3,000 Proverbs. Not all of which are in the book here. But we think probably most of his important ones are. And he wrote over a thousand songs. Proverbs, in our English word, it comes from a Latin word, proverbum, a proverbium. The Latin word is really telling. It's a telling word because it comes from two words stuck together pro and verbum. Pro meaning for, or instead of, or on behalf of. And the second word, verbum, or verbium, meaning words. So literally, Instead of words, Proverbs is a few words instead of a lot of words. You could call it an adage or an epigram or an axiom or a saying. The famous Spanish writer, Cervantes, he said this, he says, it's a short saying based on long experience. I love that. A short saying based on long experience. It's concentrated nuggets of truth that we literally need to think over and unpack as we read through them. And every culture has them, even our own. And you know some of these. Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yes, you know them. Look before you leap. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. These are all these types of adages, these axiomatical truths or epigrams that we have the Proverbs in our own language in a real sense that we learn even as children. But what makes the book of Proverbs different from all of these common adages of our own language is simple. It's called inspiration. It's called inspiration. This isn't just good advice. This is God's advice. It's not just good advice. This is God's advice. It's inspired by God, and thus this book of Proverbs is Holy Scripture. It isn't just the most optimal way to live. It is the only way to truly live. If you want to truly live in your life, these things have to be applied to our daily lives. There are people in this book that I guarantee as we begin to study it and as Dr. Freedom begins to unpack it that you're going to recognize like the scoffer. You probably know one, two, or twenty of them in your life today. A friend is mentioned. Uh, It's described in the book. A wise man. A fool is described in the book of Proverbs. And a sluggard. So what I want to do, I want to take a few minutes and I kind of want to show you the consecutive way I see the book is divided into, and hopefully, like I said a few minutes ago, give us a framework to kind of work within in our study of Proverbs in the coming Sundays. See, I see this book divided in three ways, into principles, Proverbs, and precepts. Chapters 1-9, through there seems to be principles from Solomon. Chiefly to the young or even to his own son. The words, my son, appear ten times in these chapters. The next, the next sections of Proverbs, chapters 10 through 24, they seem to compare the righteous person to the wicked. These are Proverbs of Solomon. And then there are precepts by Solomon in chapters 25-29. through 29. They're by Solomon. But they don't seem to be compiled by Solomon. It seems to tell us in chapter 29 that King Hezekiah compiled some of Solomon's writings. So these are precepts by Solomon. So we have principles from Solomon, proverbs of Solomon, and precepts by Solomon composed by Hezekiah. This last section is a proverb that says, by Agur and Lemuel. And I'll let Dr. Friedman explain how that can still relate to who Solomon is. But Proverbs is a very practical book. But I will say this, it needs to be read like all of Scripture usually goes. The connectivity of Scripture is so beautiful. It literally needs to be read in light of the other books of wisdom. See, Proverbs was written on the premise that if you live your life righteous, blessing comes. If you live your life unrighteous, Curse. There's going to be turmoil and destruction. But I guarantee that some of you, even right now, you know someone who lives an unrighteous life and it seems like they have everything the world can offer. They live what we call in the worldly sense a very great life. They can do whatever they want. They have money, fame, and status. And you know people, even today, who live righteous lives who always seem like they're up against it. It's why we have to read these in light of Ecclesiastes and Job. Because these books show us that yes, living righteous, there is blessing to become. But we know just as soon as life gets good and you try to hold it in your hand with a tight grip, it's all hevel. It's smoke and vapor and it changes. Every one of us has said something like, man, I hope this never ends. And then it does. Immediately. And then Job shows us that even the righteous can go through hard times and struggles. It isn't about our external circumstances that should lead us to God. It's about our love for Him. And this is how Proverbs work. So I want to start real quick in chapter 1. I'm going to read a few verses and I'll probably jump around a little bit. But I'm going to talk about a few things in Proverbs. Starting at chapter 1, it says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing." Solomon gives us kind of his purpose statement. This is the kind of aim of the writing of Proverbs. And he says in verse 4, he says, to give prudence to the simple. We need to raise our kids up to be prudes. This idea of having good judgment, sound judgment, to be able to make good decisions. We would call it common sense. Boy, is the world lacking a lot of common sense today. We need to raise our children up to be prudes. And it says prudence to the simple. It's another word would be naive. Those who may be younger, they don't have life experience that some of us may have. But it says in verse 4, it says to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands, obtain guidance. Why is it that when we read the Bible, we keep reading it? Have you ever met someone who says something like, Oh yeah, you know, I've read the Bible. Is this though that they're done with it? Like they read it once and they understand all of it and they got it and they're good. Like, why is it that we keep studying it? Why do we keep coming back? And I know why because it says it right there in verse five. It says a wise man will hear and increase in learning and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel or guidance. I've noticed something about people in our societies and our cultures that we consider great, smart people, wise people. They never feel like they've arrived. They never feel like they've gotten it all. Matter of fact, they never say we've been there, done that, heard that before. They want to hear it again. They want it reinforced. This is a mark of wisdom. Even the Jewish Talmud says, he who adds not to his learning, diminishes it. If he doesn't add to his learning, he diminishes it. Now in verse 6, it says this, it says, To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Now, these words, wisdom, wise, they're repeated 125 times in this book. This is what the book's about. It's about getting wisdom so you can be a wise individual. 125 times the word is repeated. It's the aim of the book. To acquire and to apply wisdom. And I want to add a word to that. It's to acquire and apply God's wisdom. It's to apply God's wisdom. The word for wise in the Hebrew is hakam. And the word for wisdom in the Hebrew is the word hokmah. In the root form, it literally means to be skilled. To be skilled at something like a trade. The word hakam and hokmah doesn't just mean to have a skill, but to be an expert in something. Literally, the meaning of wisdom in the context of the Bible seems to mean to have a skill to live well or to be an expert on godly living. Who doesn't want to leave here today and start being an expert on godly living? In Scripture, wisdom and knowledge always though begin with God. True knowledge begins with the knowledge of God. True wisdom always begins with having God as the axiom of our lives at the very center of our being. David said in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, no to God or no God. The fool says, I don't want God in my life. But a wise person says, I want God. Yes, God. More God always begins with God. That's a wise person. It starts with God. Another thing I've discovered is wisdom isn't directly proportional to age. I found some very young people who were very wise, and I found some very old, dumb people. And I don't mean that as a shock, I mean that in the intellectual sense. It's not capability, it's the fact that they don't live with wisdom. They may have a lot of knowledge, but they don't know how to apply it to their lives. So wisdom isn't proportional to age. Someone once said, in the, church, uh, in the church of God, there are children who are 70 years old, yes, little children, displaying all the affirmities of declining years. And yet on the other hand, there are fathers in the church of God, wise, stable, and instructed, who are comparatively young. That the Lord can allow His people to grow rapidly and far outstrip their years. So in godly wisdom, it's less about age and more about love and devotion. It's less about the number and more about the love and devotion we have for God. So real quick, I want to take a, a bird's eye view of Proverbs. And it just... Point out a few mountaintops that I've seen across the landscape of Proverbs as I've studied it. And the first mountain I want to call heart and mind. It's the foundational core of who we are. It comes from, it directs your worldview. It directs your actions and your thoughts. The second mountain peak I want to look at is called motivation. Some of us have it and some of us don't. After that, after mind and motivation comes mouth what you say and how you use it. And the last one I'll look at is called mistake. But let's look at the first one briefly. There are multiple things that Proverbs addresses and I can't address them all right here. But four, the things that I've pointed out, the first one I've mentioned of heart and mind, and let me get a little broader with that term. It's Let me widen it for you a bit. It's the fear of God versus the fear of man. How relevant is that Today. The fear of God versus the fear of man. If we fear the Lord, you don't have to fear men. When we don't truly live under the fear of God, we live in fear of everyone and everything else. That might be something that some of us are going through right now. Maybe we need to understand, do we fear the Lord the way we should? One of the great secrets of Proverbs is the fear of the Lord. It's over and against the fear of man. And I mentioned that first because I stopped reading in 6, and literally it's where it picks up in 7 where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Solomon begins where every one of us ought to begin. It kind of gives us a grid in our mind for keeping our heart and mind Uh, safe in the rest of our life, to keeping it oriented correctly the rest of our life, this grid called the fear of the Lord. It's a grid of the fear of the Lord, and it says it's the beginning of knowledge. In 9-10, he says it's the beginning of wisdom. The word beginning means the most important part, the uppermost part. The most important aspect of knowledge and wisdom is fearing God. To fear the Lord. 18 references of fearing the Lord is in this book of Proverbs alone and another 50-something times in the Bible throughout. But what does it mean? I'm gonna tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you have a superstitious dread of God. That you always see God in heaven wearing a frown, ready to pounce on you at every mistake you make. Because if you do, you're gonna live in morbid, morbid fear every day of your life. That's not who God is, that's not his character. It's a word that means to revere or to respect. In the Hebrew, it's two words. Yarat Yahweh. To see the fear of the Lord as a reverential awe that produces humble submission to a loving God. It's a reverential awe that should produce humble submission to our loving God. It is based on relationship, not repercussion. Let me repeat that. It's based on relationship, not repercussion. It's based on your love of Him and your knowledge of how much He loves you. It's not based on the fact that you think He's going to beat you up every time you step out of line. It's relationship, not repercussion. You're so in awe of God, you don't want to displease Him. But what will this fear of the Lord do for you? And I think it's a couple of things I want to point out real quick out of Proverbs. And the first one is, it's going to keep you from evil. If you need a guardian in your life, or you need some sort of governor, like on a car that keeps you from revving up too high or going off the tracks, you need the fear of God in your life. The fear of the Lord will keep you from evil. Proverbs 16.6 says, The fear of the Lord, it, it, one is, uh, by the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. What can keep us from doing certain things is a healthy fear of the Lord. A reverential awe that produces humble submission to a loving God. Proverbs 8.13 says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, arrogance, and the evil way. The fear of the Lord allows us to hate these things that God hates. An example of this, I thought about it, was in Genesis. And I thought about the story of Joseph. and From a pit to slavery and then into Potiphar's house. And one day, Potiphar's wife notices Joseph standing there, probably like a Mr. Egypt, right? Potiphar's not there, and Joseph's the one that kind of takes care of things. And she kind of, not so subtly, looks at him and goes, Hey, Joe, you know, why don't you just come hop in bed with me? And what Joseph said should be so telling for all our lives. He says, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against the Lord? See, Joseph, he shows more of a consciousness that God is watching far more than Potiphar. He cares more about what God thinks more than what Potiphar thinks and even more than what she thinks. The fear of the Lord will keep you from evil. Joseph cared far more about what God's view of his actions would be than what Potiphar finding out or even what she thought about his actions. The second thing it will do is it's going to increase your quality of life. Who doesn't want that? What did Jesus say? He says, I've come so that they might live and have it and life more abundantly. He didn't say I've come so that they might have bummer and bummer more abundantly. He said life more abundantly. He wants us to live abundant lives. In Proverbs 14.26 it says, in the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and His children will have a place of refuge. Fear of the Lord's not just going to bless you, but it's going to bless the next generation. It's something you hand down to your kids. It's something they see in your life and they live out in theirs and it's a generational thing after a generational thing. There's a multiplication that happens when we fear the Lord healthily. 14.27, it says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life and turns one away from the snares of death. We must live with a reverent awe of God that leads to humble submission. A reverent all that leads to humble submission. The second peak I called motivation. And to expand that a little bit, this is the diligent versus the lazy. I love what one person said one time. and He said, you know, I love work. I love work. It just fascinates me. I could just sit and watch it for hours. And this is kind of depicts a lazy person in Proverbs 6. Uh, six, six to eleven. It says this, and it starts out, and this is one of my, my one of my favorite lines in all the proverbs. By the way, it says that. Go to the ant, you sluggard. There are some words in Scripture you cannot interpret any better than that. I don't know. You might can find a word that goes there, but I'm going to use sluggard from here on out. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Is what it says. I love that word. And it says, consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or rule. She prepares her dread in summer and gathers her food and harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. That's a great word. And as believers, we should be concerned Not with just what kind of work we do, but what kind of workers we are in the work we do. So often in our lives, we spend a lot of time wondering what it is we're going to do for work. Maybe we should spend more time in thinking about what kind of worker are we going to be once we get there. Because it matters. It matters as Christians whether we work well, are we good stewards of the platforms we've been given, of the positions we've been given, of our paycheck? Some people treat work like it's part of the curse. I've heard this. It's a part of the fall. They need to read Scripture a little bit deeper into their Bible because work began far before the fall began. Matter of fact, one of the first things God did to Adam was give him a job. He employed him to attend to the garden. Work isn't the curse. It says the sweat of the brow from God-given work is. Even in the Ten Commandments it says that six days we're going to labor and one will rest six days we'll labor christ is an example of that very thing i saw um uh I heard a story one time of a uh, kind of a prominent business owner that he used to advertise on christian radio and somebody asked him one time i used to hear your radio uh, commercial all the time but i hadn't heard it in a long time what happened he said yeah i had to take it off and i'll never put it back on there he said he said every time i would get these People, so-called Christians, come in my door, and I would hire them. He said they were just the worst workers I've ever had. And the guy was like, "Well, you don't, uh, you don't really believe that. I mean, you're a brother in Christ." And he goes, "That's exactly my point." He says that they, they, everything they did was like, "Oh, brother, take it easy on me. Oh, brother, I need a break." They tried to use the bro card to do the no work thing. And what he says is, "I'd rather just hire a pagan with a good work ethic." That's something we need to change as Christians. It's not just about what you do, but you better be doing it well. You better be doing it to the best of your ability. If you're going to reflect Christ in your life, it's every aspect of your life, and you better be a good steward of your paycheck. We need a good work ethic. We have to change that. So as we compare the lazy or the sluggard to the diligent, I want to point out two things. A lazy person, a sluggard, they never finish things. Proverbs 12.27 says, the lazy man doesn't does not roast what he took in hunting. He has all the motivation to get up early and tell you this, that takes a lot to go out into the woods and let his feet turn to a block of ice and sit there and be cold to kill the thing, but he doesn't have enough energy to finish the job and cook what he's killed. That's what a lazy person does. They don't finish the job. In Proverbs 19.24, a lazy man, it he buries his hand in the bowl and would not so much as bring it to his mouth again. I want you to picture that. at the At the... Breakfast table, not only is he so lazy he won't grab a spoon, that they just dip their hand inside their oatmeal and then ka Done. They don't know how to finish things. The lazy man pointed out in Proverbs, he does something, but he won't bring it to completion. The second thing is not only will he not finish it, but he won't face things as they are. He always has an excuse. It's too cold. It's too hot. It's too dangerous. It's too risky. It's too hard. In Proverbs 22, 13, it says, it says this. It says, there is a, 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 long, a man says, there is a lion outside. I shall be slain in the streets. If you live with that kind of fear, paranoid, and you're unwilling to face reality. Some of us are unwilling to even go outside our doors sometimes because we're afraid of what the world might do to us. We need a healthy fear of the Lord. Proverbs 20, uh, verse 4, it says this. The lazy man will not plow because of winter, and he will beg during harvest and have nothing. This is a person that's not only lazy, but he literally rationalizes why he should be lazy. He's not only lazy, but he comes up with excuses of why it's okay to be lazy. A lazy person like that, it's a little bit like a kid I heard one time when he says, I get up every morning and I do my exercises. As soon as I wake up, I get up and it's up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. And I do that for three minutes. And then I say, okay, it's time for the other eyelid. Up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. I do that for three minutes. That's the lazy person. Compare the sluggard to someone someone who always has an excuse. They don't finish the job. They're unwilling to do what's needed to be done to the great violin maker Stradivarius, Antonius Stradivarius. Why do people love his instruments so much? Sometimes violin players have paid over a million dollars for some of his instruments. And this is, it's because of this. He lived with the idea that music was a gift from God. And that if he didn't make the most, the most beautiful instruments, the best instruments, people would be deprived of God's music. So he put all his energy and his effort into learning about wood and resonance, shaving here, shaving there, so that if the instrument would play the very best of God's music to the world, Is that how about that for motivation for you today? We need a little motivation in our Christian life. Now the third peak, and I'll try to be as quick as I can, but this is a big one, it's mouth. The difference between a wholesome mouth and a polluted mouth. The words like tongue, lips, mouth, and word are found... 50 times. What you do with your mouth. And Proverbs 6.16, it talks about six things that the Lord hates. And a little side note, if you ever want to know what God's will for your life might be, maybe start here. Because if there is something so explicit in Scripture that says this is what God hates, you might want to make sure you're not doing those things. You might want to start here if you want to know what God's will for your life is. But it says this, six things God hates. It says a proud look. Man, We might need to help the younger generation. And I guarantee you, some of you might turn red in the face, but some of you uh, parents as well, on social media. It's all about looking cool, right? Man, I look cool. My picture all the selfies. A proud look is something that God hates. Congratulations, you did it. You did it. You've created a whole web page of it. But a proud look is something that God hates. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift in running towards evil. A false witness who spreads lies. And one who sows discord among the brethren. Seven things, the old Hebrew adage there, of seven actual things in the list. But three of them are about misusing your words. Three of them speak to our tongue. In Proverbs 25.11 it says that words fitly spoken are like apples of gold in a setting of silver. As Christians, we need to expand our vocabulary. We need to be willing to think deeply about the gospel and articulate it. Language is important. We've been studying we've been talking in the youth as uh, throughout holidays and, and COVID restrictions and all these different things, we've been talking a little bit about other worldviews and ideologies. And we just got finished kind of talking about postmodernism. And one of the main things at the heart of postmodernism is its attack on language. And I keep encouraging them. It's not enough that you just think deeply about what's foundational to your life. You need to think deeply about the important things in your life, but you better be able to articulate it. You need to be able to speak on the things that are foundational in your life. It's not, it's not coincidence that Genesis doesn't start out with his hands or his eyes, but it starts out with him speaking. Language is important to who you are. It's important to us as individuals. It helps us grow. And it's not just about what you believe, but it's about the brokenness in your life. You better be able to articulate what it is, the damage that sin has done in your life. To be able to speak that to others. It's like prayer. It's not, just, it's not for them. It's not just to get another perspective. That's helpful. But it's for you to hear it. You need to hear the depth in which sins wreck your life. You also need to hear the power in the words of God. You need to be able to articulate your faith. You need to be able to articulate your faith. It's important. Language is important. I love what Mark Twain says. He says the difference in the right word and almost right word is the difference between lightning and the lightning bug. The difference in the right word and the one that's almost right is the difference between lightning and a lightning bug. The right word and almost right, this is not the same thing. Because lightning and a lightning bug are very different in their display of dazzle and power. You better have the right word. I've heard people say, well, it's almost the right word. You know what I mean. Well, how about this? Why don't you go think a little deeper, find out what it is exactly you mean, and then say that. That's what we need to do with our faith. Know what it is we believe. Why it's important. And be able to articulate it to the world. Because they're almost right words. The difference in a lightning bug and lightning. The right word. Not almost right. In Proverbs 18.21 it says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now the last peak I want to look at is uh, I've t- entitled Mistakes. And this is Isolation versus Friendship. In Proverbs 18, 1, it says this. Some of us don't want, and I I believe this truly, some of us don't want to get close to people because we've been hurt before. Some of us want to keep people at arm's length because of the rejection and the fear of rejection. Maybe it's rejection for our own choices. But God, He looked at us in the beginning and He said, it's not good for man to be alone. This is what God said. It's not good for man to be alone. God has hard, hardwired us for relationship. You will never grow emotionally or spiritually alone. You need to understand that right now. There is no such thing as a solitary Christian. There is not. You were created by a triune God who is already in relationship and defines what it looks like. You need to be in relationship. You'll never grow alone. In Proverbs 17, 17 it says, A friend... Loves at all times. And a brother is born for adversity. How many of us need that in our lives? How many of us are that to someone else? We're built for relationship. There's several more, but because my time is up and I was told to be efficient, I'm going to speed up. It says uh, in Proverbs eighteen twenty-four, it speaks on the same thing. It's friendship. 27.17 unpacks this greatly. But I want to get to Proverbs 31 where it speaks... Of the greatest friendship we have as men and women. And this is in marriage. In marriage. I want to read verse 10 real quick. And it says this. It says, An excellent wife. Who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her. And he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm. In all the days of her life, she seeks wool and flax and works the willing of her hand. She's diligent in her work, not lazy. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers the field and buys it with the fruit of her hands. She plants the vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands on the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. I think you get the point. The greatest, the greatest picture we have of who God is is in our family unit. And it starts with man and woman. It starts with this compatible opposite that God placed in a garden for men. Someone who who made of the same substance has the same life force in us, but is not us. They're compatible with us in every way. We need this in our life. We're built for it, or we were hardwired to love people. God has called us to love people. As we go through the book of Proverbs, keep these things in mind. As you go through your next, the rest of this day, as you wake up tomorrow, keep in mind the fact that we need a healthy fear of God. A healthy fear of God can lead you to motivation to do the work God's called you to do, but also do it well. A healthy fear of God can guard you from the evils that the tongue can bring about and use it for good to lift people up, to bring Christ into people's lives. And a healthy fear of God can draw you into relationship not just with Him, but with others around you. It can redeem some of the brokenness in our relationships that we have. But I want to leave you with one warning as I close. Solomon was the wisest man alive. God gave him all the wisdom in the world. He departed from it. It starts well for Solomon, but ends poorly. He didn't even heed his own advice. It has to begin and end with God in your life. All the wisdom, all the knowledge, all the physical pleasures of this world mean nothing if he's not at the center of your heart. He's the guiding force behind our wisdom. He's the guiding force behind our actions. Fear God. Live with motivation, with diligence. Understand that relationships are key And that language is at the center of who we are. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, thank You so much for being a God who, who loves us enough to die for us. Lord, allow us to live our lives in a way that honors that. To live every moment intentional. To be diligent in the work that You've called us to do. Whether it's cleaning toilets, whether it's owning businesses, it doesn't matter. Lord, to reflect You in every move that we make, in every word that we utter. Allow us to see the power in language that from the very beginning you spoke us into existence, that we call your Son the eternal Word, and that's not accidental. That we need to think deeply about the things in our life that are meaningful and be able to articulate them with the world. That the only way we overcome the brokenness in our life is to be able to articulate it with our brothers and sisters, to be open with one another. To be in relationship with one another. And all of that starts with a healthy relationship with you. With a healthy fear of who you are. Not not to be a coward, not to be shaking in our boots, or to to see you as some sort of tyrant. But a a healthy awe and reverence that leads us to humble submission to a God that loves us so much He gave His life. Allow that to be a reality as we leave here today. In a world that needs to not just hear your word, but see it lived out. Allow us to love people. We love you and we thank you. In all your name. Amen.